We come this morning to a very special passage of Scripture, Luke 15. This chapter has been treasured by Christians for centuries because it tells some stories. It tells stories that are well-loved because they reveal the heart of God in a way that few other places of Scripture do. And so as we come to Luke 15, I encourage you, invite you to open your personal copy of God's Word to Luke 15. And then if you don't have a copy with you, you're welcome to open the Pew Bible that's directly in front of you. And you'll find our passage there as well. This chapter lands directly in the middle of Luke's narrative of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Jesus has been moving towards Jerusalem in the final six months of his life, beginning in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. As he goes along, he continues to reveal himself as the king of Israel, calling Israel to repent of their sins, to turn to him in repentance and faith. But as he continues to do that, and the people continue to follow him, the religious leaders, those who had the spiritual control over the people, were increasingly frustrated. The scribes and the Pharisees grew, continued to grow in their hatred and their opposition to Jesus. And that animosity we're going to see even in our passage this morning. Here in Luke 15, we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 10. And we'll look at the remaining verses of the chapter next week. But let's begin by reading those first 10 verses of Luke 15 for our study this morning. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What if what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May God bless and impress its truths upon our hearts. In this passage as that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see three expressions, three expressions of Jesus' love for wayward souls that would cause us to draw near to him and would also propel us out to the lost. This passage needs to have this dual force upon us. It should show us the magnetism of Jesus that would see his love and cause us to draw near to him. And yet it should 
in seeing the love of Jesus for wayward souls, it should also impress upon us the need to have that same love for wayward souls and push us out to reach those who are lost. And so let's look at these three expressions. The first expression of Jesus' love that we see in our text is number one, Jesus' appeal to ruined sinners. Jesus' appeal to ruined sinners. Look at verse one with me. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Verse one opens up with a new scene and hence the chapter marker is, is placed here. Luke identifies two groups of people here who were drawing near to Christ. First are the tax collectors. We've seen them before in the Gospel of Luke. These people were employed in the Roman taxation system. As Rome, who was the, the empire, who ruled the empire, they taxed all of their provinces. And so they put people over those provinces to collect the taxes, and those who were over there also hired those under them to then further carry out their role of collecting taxes. They would hire these tax farmers who would do this work of extracting the taxes and these tax farmers would then hire individuals, the tax collectors, to go knock on doors and ask people to pay up. Now the collectors had a certain quota to meet, they had to go all the way back to Rome, but they could fudge a little bit on the number that they're telling the person at the door and they could collect a little bit on the side and whatever was above that quota they would pocket and so therefore they were widely known to be extortioners to be those that would steal from the people and therefore they were hated not only because they stole but because they were fellow Jewish citizens who were working on behalf of Rome they were they were working on behalf of the occupiers, the, the conquering army that was there in their land that was not, uh, didn't belong there. These tax collectors were traitors. Luke identifies the second group known as sinners. This is where it was a category of people who were coming to him who had low morals. They had engaged in sinful activities, taking on sinful occupations such as prostitutes and thieves. And they were considered unclean by the religious establishment because they lived disobedient to God's law and therefore they were rejected, cast aside, and given no time. Together, these two classes of people are often grouped together in the Gospels and were used to describe really the reprobates of society, those who were seen as destined to hell because of their immorality, the hopeless ones. And so the religious leaders, those who were the spiritual, uh, uh, those who get, provided a spiritual guidance to the people, kept their distance from them and wanted nothing to do with tax collectors and sinners. And yet, notice, what are these groups of people doing? They are, they are drawing near to Christ. And not just some of them. Notice the word all. They were all drawing near to him. He had a magnetism about him that called these people who were, had been living immoral lifestyles to come to him. They were moved to go to Jesus. In one sense, there was, uh, this had to look somewhat like some sort of revival that was taking place amongst the lower classes of Jewish society. 
I want your eye to drift up to one verse previous, the last verse of Luke 14. The last sentence of that verse, it says this, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What Jesus was saying here, if you were here with us last week, is that all people who heal his ears, that's everybody, should hear what Jesus is saying. In other words, this is a message for all people to heed and to obey. What was the message? It was a message of total abandonment to Christ. It was a message of renouncing everything and going to Jesus. It was a, it was a message that said that nothing is worth more than Jesus Christ himself. And we should give up everything for him. He said that they must give Jesus all of their love and all of their loyalty. And so now we, we turn the page, as it were, from chapter 14 to chapter 15. And who has heard that call? And who is responding and answering that call? It's the tax collectors and sinners. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. They said, we'll hear you, Jesus. It's not the religious and the devout that are turning to Jesus. It's not the spiritually devoted that are turning to Jesus. No, it's the immoral and the reprobate. It's those who have ruined their lives morally and socially because of their immoral choices. They heard Jesus give a call, and they answered that call. They came to hear him. Now, what did these folks see in Jesus? What drew them to Jesus like this? What appealed so strongly? Well, I think one thing was that he was not put off by their immorality. He wasn't seeking to keep his distance from them. He was willing to go to where they were. He was willing to speak with them. We saw this in the story of Levi, also known as Matthew, in Luke chapter 5, where he approached Levi and spoke to him and called him to be his disciple. But not only is he not put off by their immorality, but he accepted the love and the touch of these immoral people. You see, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes said, don't get near me because, see, if you get near me and touch me, you're going to make me unclean, and Jesus is not afraid of that. We saw this in the story of the sinful woman in chapter 7. She comes in and to this dinner party at a Pharisee's house, and she sees that Jesus is there, and she begins to weep over him, and her tears fall upon his, uh, his feet, and she then wipes his tears, her tears with her hair, anoints him with oil. Jesus is not repulsed, was not repulsed in the least. In fact, he saw the great love that she expressed, and he accepted it. But thirdly, I think most importantly, what did these people see? They saw that in Jesus, in Jesus alone, they could have their sins forgiven. He forgave sins. These impure people who felt like they were hopeless, they had nowhere to turn, they had nothing they could do, they had sinned against God, they had chosen a lifestyle and an occupation that was uh, put them permanently on the blacklist according to the, the standards of the day, and yet they could hear from Jesus that they could have their sins forgiven, their slate wiped clean. They could no longer be defined by their past but they could have a new hope and a new future. They were able to have the deepest issues of their hearts resolved to be reconciled to their God. And they recognized 
more than the religious leaders that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. The point is this, Jesus had compassion on these lost people. He moved toward them in their sin and he offered salvation to them. And because of this, they were drawn to him. And friends, this same Jesus who had compassion on sinners in the first century has compassion upon sinners today. If you are here today and you are burdened by your sense of guilt and shame and sin, I have good news for you. Jesus is alive and well and he offers forgiveness to you too today. You can come to him and find the same forgiveness that these people found. Jesus is not put off by your evil deeds. He is not surprised and repulsed by that which you do in secret. He knows and he provides a way for you to be cleaned, for you to be healed, for you to be forgiven and reconciled to God. And so I encourage you to come to him to embrace Christ fully, repenting of your sin and embracing him and find the forgiveness that these folks found, that we all have found. Friends, this first verse reminds us that no sinner is beyond the reach of God's grace. No sin is too great for Jesus to forgive. The only question is, will we go to him in faith? and receive the forgiveness that he offers. This verse also reminds us though, and to ask the question, are sinners, quote unquote, today, those who have given themselves completely over to the sin of the flesh and the sin of this world that live around us, are they drawn to us in any sort of way in that we mirror the character of Christ? Do we move towards them in such a way that they would know that we love and care for them as, Jesus, as these folks knew that Jesus loved and cared for them. You see, it's often those who are the greatest sinners who have the greatest openness to the gospel. They have often have a greater sense of their need of salvation than those who live a religious life but are also lost. And so we must not shrink back from taking the gospel to the most immoral people. Of course, many will not accept the message of Christ, but some will, and we must take the gospel to them. I'm reminded of a man in our congregation who's been going into the prisons for decades, bringing the gospel to those behind bars who have committed great sins as well as great crimes. And God has blessed his ministry. There has been gospel fruit of those who have heard the word in some of their darkest moments. They have had a deep sense of the fact that they are ruined sinners. But they have heard the word of life, that Christ is there for them. And so in this one verse, we see here an expression of Jesus' love in that he had an appeal to these ruined sinners. But let's look verse 2 at the second expression. We see Jesus' welcome of rejected sinners. His welcome of rejected sinners. Verse 2, it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. 
There is a direct correlation in the Gospels between Jesus' popularity with the people and the Pharisees' Pharisees' hatred of him. Verse 2 says that these Pharisees and scribes grumbled amongst themselves. These were the religious elite. These were the religious leaders. They considered themselves to be holy men, and the populace believed that to be the case. They saw them be very careful, fastidious observance to the the Old Testament law. They weren't going to find themselves becoming unclean. They were going to obey every law to the jot and tittle. And therefore, they were respected for their morality. And so these great holy men saw these Moral degenerates going to Jesus and they grumble. This word for grumble is the same word used in the Greek Old Testament to describe the grumbling of the people of Israel. You remember when they left Egypt and God saved them miraculously and then they're only a couple days journey into the desert, the wilderness, and they start grumbling against the Lord? Why did you bring us out here, Moses? You just brought us out here to die, didn't you? Start grumbling against Moses and ultimately against the Lord. The same word for grumbling is used here. And now the descendants of those ancient Israelites were doing the same thing, grumbling about what God was doing this time through Jesus rather than through Moses. These grumblings, of course, would continue and they'd escalate until they reached a fever pitch and a crescendo that would result in the Passion Week, putting Jesus on the cross. But here they're angry about his association with these immoral people. Look at what they say. They say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They can't even say his name. This man, that one, can't believe it. They bring two charges against Jesus. First, he receives sinners. And this isn't just the the way that... uh, you know, someone might receive someone into their office in a more of an official or professional way that says, yes, come in, come in, have a seat, and they've received him. No, this word for receive uh, is, has to do with uh, getting a, uh, welcoming them into fellowship. It refers to deeper relationship. He's welcoming them into his home, as it were. This is the word used in Philippians 2, verse 29 where Paul instructed the Philippians to receive Epaphroditus with joy and to honor him. Paul used this word again in Romans 16, 1 and 2, where he he writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sencrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. You may welcome her in a way worthy of the saints. This same word for welcome. And so what we see from these uses of the word welcome is that Jesus was welcoming these sinful people into his midst. He was embracing them. He treated them as people that he cared for and people that he fellowshiped with. But this is further communicated in the second charge that the Pharisees bring against Jesus. And that is not only that he receives sinners, but he eats with them. He eats with them. And that might sound a little petty today. You know, it's kind of like, He met with them and he ate a cheeseburger with them. Can you believe that? You know, we're like, okay, what's the big deal? They got together with them. Come on. But in the Middle East, the idea of eating with somebody had more um, almost sacramental uh, undertones to it. There was something deep that was taking place when a meal was shared. 
It communicated respect. It communicated re deep relationship and acceptance. I want you to come and sit at my table. There may be some that you welcome in the door and you talk to, but then that's a different category from those that you invite to your table. And so in this verse, we see in this, the Pharisees' response a deep and sharp contrast between the religious leaders and Jesus. The Pharisees rejected the tax collectors and sinners, believing they were spiritually hopeless and not worth their time. But Jesus, on the other hand, welcomed these rejected sinners. And he spent time with them. He understood them and he loved them. Again, as readers of Luke's gospel, we're not surprised by this. We've already seen him do that with Levi or Matthew and his friends back in chapter 5. And the Pharisees got angry then. And then in Luke chapter 7, that story of that sinful woman who came and wiped Jesus' feet with her tears. So Jesus accepts, welcomes, loves, and forgives these folks. Why was Jesus spending time with them? Did he just, was he short on friends? And this is the only place he could get friends? Was it because he approved of their sin and their lifestyles? Was it because he didn't care about how they lived? Well, we know that's not the case. He spent time with them. He welcomed them because he sought to win them. He had his, as his goal the salvation of these souls. He had compassion on them in their sinful state and he wanted to help them. He wanted to offer to them the only way of escape from their sin. Again, the prevailing religious ideas of the day said that those people were hopeless and could not be saved. The legalism and the moral pride of the Pharisees caused them to cruelly condemn lost people. They were leaders who didn't care about their people. They were, these people were apparently in their midst. They were supposed to lead them as well, and yet they didn't really care for them. They were shepherds who didn't care about lost sheep. And they were happy to let the lost sheep go to the wolves as long as the good obedient sheep stayed in the fold. And sadly, there are many today who seek to find salvation and consolation for their sins through legalistic religious systems. And yet every other religious system will fail to offer the forgiveness that Jesus offers. There is no ladder that we can climb. There is no amount of good deeds that we can do in order to cleanse our consciences from the guilt that we have before a holy God. It is only through trusting in Jesus and his sacrifice upon the cross that his blood cleanses us from all sin. And that as we confess those sins, the promise is we can be forgiven. So friends, I believe these two verses should prompt us, the church of Christ, to ask ourselves if our spiritual pride keeps us from moving towards those who are in sin themselves. Yes, we are not to be engaged with the sin of the world around us. We are to keep ourselves unstained from the world, as James 1 tells us, and not walk in that way, Psalm 1. But we are to follow in the example of Christ and move towards those around us who are living in sin and yet need a way out. We should, like Jesus, move towards those whose lives are in shambles because of sin. 
By God's grace, our lives and families might be night and day different from our neighbors. But this should not lead us towards arrogance or avoidance. Rather, we should invite them into our homes and around our dinner tables, those who might rightly be called sinners. May we follow in our Savior's example. And so we've seen so far Jesus' love for these wayward souls expressed first in his appeal to ruined sinners, secondly in his welcome of rejected sinners, and now thirdly we see it expressed in Jesus' joy over rescued sinners. Jesus' joy over rescued sinners. And we see this in verses 3 through 10. Here Jesus replies to the grumbling of the Pharisees and scribes. If you were Jesus and you were pouring out your heart for people that they might know the living God and you heard these pious, self-righteous snobs off to the side really grumbling and, and, and putting you down for how you're pouring yourself out. What might be some emotions that rise up in your heart? <laughs> I could see the temptation to launch into a tirade. Do you understand what I'm trying to do here? Do you understand who the living God even is? No, you don't. And there's a time that Jesus will launch into a tirade. Woe to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. But here he doesn't do that. Here, verse 3, he it says, so he told them this parable. He, with reserve and wisdom, tells them a story. And in fact, it's three stories, but you'll notice that verse three is in the singular, a parable, not parables. And no, Luke did not just not know how to count. This is used elsewhere in the book of Luke, chapter 5 as well as chapter 6, in which multiple parables are introduced by a singular word, parable. And it tells us that these three stories that are found in chapter 15 all communicate a single point. Jesus is giving one singular reply even though there's a series of three stories. They're like multiple lines of harmony that join together to form a single song. The first of the two parables are about a lost sheep and a lost coin. They're very similar, and they drive home a similar point. A third parable about a man who has two sons harmonizes perfectly with these two and further, adds further details as well. But for our purposes this morning, we're going to look at the first two of these parables. And so we see Jesus' joy over rescued sinner, sinners, number one, illustrated in the story of the lost sheep. First illustrated in the story of the lost sheep in verses 3 through 7. He begins his reply with, these, with a question. Look at verse 4. He says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? He asks, which man of you, having a hundred sheep, would not go and seek to find the one sheep that is lost? Shepherding is a common occupation in the Middle East. In fact, I have a picture of a flock of, of sheep for you 
I, don't, I didn't bother to count whether it's 100. I assume it's 100 or over. Um, but it gives you a sense of a flock of sheep in uh, that terrain. And they would send them up and over the hills looking for pasture to graze. And it's typically at night that the shepherd would count his sheep to see, did they all come in from the day? And in this story, the man finds that there is missing a sheep. Now, it was for farmers then, as it is, or it was for shepherds then, as it is for farmers now. A lost animal is a financial loss. This is not just like, oh, bummer, we're going to miss out on the wool for the winter a little bit. This is, this is serious money that is that is lost at this point. And so, everyone would understand, yeah, of course, you're going to go look for the lost sheep. And so Jesus can ask this question in such a way that everyone would answer, not be nodding their heads. Yeah, of course you would go look. And yet agreeing that there, this should be done is, is one thing uh, compared to actually going out and doing it. You can say, yeah, yeah, you, you should go look for that sheep. It's another thing to actually launch out and do it. To climb over the rocky terrain of the Middle Eastern wilderness is no easy feat. There was, you could, in that former picture, you can imagine a sheep wandering up over the hills and all of a sudden you're into some different kind of terrain. I've got a second picture that shows sheep grazing in the wilderness, in the Judean wilderness. You can see somewhat barren, but still a place that they keep flocks today. And so the shepherd, it says, leaves the 99 in the wilderness or the open country, very possibly with somebody else, uh, another hired hand or an assistant shepherd, and he goes out looking for the lost sheep. But it was with this one question that Jesus opens a whole can of worms with these religious leaders. He's not just asking an in, telling an innocent story. The first is that shepherds were despised by the Pharisees. They would never uh, dirty themselves of being involved in such a task. They, they saw the shepherds as unclean men. And yet here, Jesus tells a story in such a way that he assumes them as the role as, of a shepherd. He's essentially saying, listen, you're the shepherds of the people Israel, and so if you lose a sheep, aren't you going to go out and look for it? If he was actually addressing these, these men as they lived their lives in the upper class of society, he would have asked the question this way. He would have said, what man of you owning a hundred sheep, if one of them was lost, does not direct his servant to leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that was lost until he finds it? These men wouldn't themselves have gone looking for the lost sheep. They would have sent a servant, a hired shepherd, to go do that. But Jesus says, you are going out to do this. But more than that, in identifying these men as shepherds, Jesus is clearly stating these men should be shepherding the people of Israel. Again, the context of this parable is the fact that you have Jesus and the Pharisees, and they have two different ways of ministering to the people. And Jesus is giving a defense for his method of ministry and indicting the Pharisees for theirs. They should be caring for the people of Israel. They should be caring for God's people, protecting them, feeding them, and pursuing those who were lost. But in fact, emphatically, they are not. In the background of this is Ezekiel 34. We don't have time to turn there, but it's a passage in which 
God reveals that to the shepherds of Israel, the time of Ezekiel, that they were not caring for the, the people of Israel. They were shepherds who instead were scattering the flock rather than seeking out the lost. And in Ezekiel 34, God says, I will go and gather my sheep and I will set up my prince, David, who will rule over them. Jesus here shows that he is the one who indeed seeks out the lost. He is the one who fulfills the role of the good shepherd and pursues the lost. The contrast couldn't be greater. Jesus is the good shepherd who goes out looking for lost souls. The Pharisees and scribes are wicked shepherds who instead leave the lost to die on their own. Their rules and requirements keep them sequestered from those who most need the message of God's grace. These men would not dare take a step towards these sinners. But the financial reality of this parable, the, the, the fact that money's involved in this parable helps clarify the issues. There's sometimes that uh, moral issues can be muddied, but when you move it into the realm of the, of the financial, every, all of a sudden everyone gets on the same page. And that's the case here. If any of them, any of these men had lost any sort of money, any sort of financial resources, they would have surged high and low for it. They would have paid a high cost in order to find that which was lost. But get this, they won't do the same for lost souls. They care more about their money than they care about people. But Jesus now takes this contrast and really begins to pull away from the religious leaders by describing the joy that's expressed in the finding of the lost sheep. Joy or rejoicing is mentioned in each verse in verse 5, 6, and 7. Notice verse 5. It says, And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. After a thorough search, which could have lasted a day or two, as he's searching high and low over the hills of the wilderness, he finds the lone lost sheep. And yet finding it is only half the battle. Kind of stand there out in the middle of nowhere and go, great, I found you. All right, we got to get back home. And so what does he do? He puts the sheep on his shoulders. No doubt you've seen this image before. I've got a, a picture of some Christian art from the late third century that is an image repeated in many different uh, scenes through the centuries that Christians have portrayed Jesus as the good shepherd and in this that traditional way of carrying the sheep over their shoulders and that way they can hold on with one hand and it keeps another hand available for in this case it was a walking stick it could be for crawling up climbing up a, a, a rocky uh, a rocky wall just scrambling over the rocks this is a common way to carry the sheep but remember he has to go, he has to retrace his steps he's got with this sheep on his shoulders he's now got to climb through rocky ravines he's got to go over rough and dangerous terrain this return this searching out of this lost sheep guys get this was costly for this shepherd this is not a walk in the park for the shepherd to go out and find the lost sheep and you know, walk through fields of green grass. Oh, there you are, sheep. Come on, let's go back. This is a diligent, difficult search and a difficult uh, return trip. 
Many pictures of Jesus often have him carrying a little lamb on his shoulders or carrying a little lamb in his arms. But this story calls it a sheep, doesn't call it a lamb. This animal, I believe, is full grown and therefore, again, communicates to the high cost that the shepherd paid in order to get this sheep back. A full grown sheep, from what I could find, weighs on average between 200 and 300 pounds. Just for comparison, Marines typically carry between 100 and 135 pounds, 135 pounds in their packs. 200 to 300 pounds. And what's the attitude of this shepherd? As he goes out and finds that stupid sheep that wandered off, it's joy. It's not frustration. It's not anger. It's joy. He put it on rejoicing. You can picture him almost singing as he hikes back with the sheep on his shoulders. But he, he's so overjoyed, he doesn't want to keep it to himself. He throws a party for his lost sheep. And he invites friends and neighbors, it says, once he gets back home. And, and, and so this joy is no longer private, it's now communal. He invites the village to come and to celebrate with him. Verse 6, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. But then Jesus takes this story to its conclusion in verse 7 with a comparative statement. Look at it with me. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He makes a statement about heaven's joy, which is just another way to talk about God the Father's joy. As we'll see in the next parable, it can include the angels as well, but this is primarily talking about God's joy. And there's two different kinds of people here listed in verse 7. Those who repent and those who have no need of repentance. Now we know biblically that there is no such thing as righteous people who need no repentance. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own way. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. There is no unrighteous, no, not one, Paul says. And so this statement here, talking about the 99 righteous and the one sinner who repents is a stinging indictment to the religious leaders who were so disdainful of his ministry. They believed they were righteous because they obeyed God's law. They didn't believe that they needed to repent. And so who does heaven celebrate? Who is God pleased with and throw a party for? Is it for those religious leaders who are obeying the law perfectly, quote unquote? Or is it the sinners who are turning to repentance? Jesus shockingly says it is over those sinners who turn to repentance. And friends, isn't this great news for us? That we can have the joy of heaven over a simple act such as our repentance and faith to Christ. He takes joy in our repenting because when we repent, we cast ourselves upon God. We throw ourselves completely upon him and say, God, save me. I cannot save myself. And so he is glorified and he is honored as we throw ourselves upon him. As we repent of our sin, we turn away from the sin that we are living in. We, we run to him. We're 
declaring that we can't save ourselves. We're agreeing with God about our sin. In short, we're coming to him on his terms. And in this way, he receives the most glory. And so we can never forget that God delights in humble repentance. This is true at the start of the Christian life, at our conversion, and it's true all the way through it. God delights in humble repentance. So we see Jesus' joy over rescued sinners in this first story of the lost sheep. But let's look briefly now at the story of the, illustrated in the story of the lost coin in verses 8 through 10. Jesus repeats the imagery but with a different set of circumstances. But the point is the same. This time the main character is a woman. And it says, verse 8, What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? This woman has 10 coins, she's lost one, and she goes looking for it. These coins were the, a drachma, which is a, a, a coin that was eventually replaced by the denarius. It was the equivalent of a day's laborer's wage. And so it was about 10 days of labor that were, she was holding on to. Not a huge amount, but definitely not pocket change. This was substantial. The family would have to live off of these funds for a couple weeks. Now, village women of that day would store their money in different ways. There's evidence that uh, some would wear coins on a headdress as part of their dowry, and this would be uh, some way to, to, uh, uh, to carry around their uh, wealth. The others would wear it in jewelry, uh, such as bracelets or necklaces. But I think the situation that is here described is a little more common in which she simply had 10 coins. She probably had a piece of cloth. She wrapped it up, tied it with a string, and then attached it to a belt, somewhat having just a, a money bag with her wherever she go, went to be able to buy the food and, and whatever else was needed for the household. But in the course of the day, she misplaces one. She now has nine, and she's frantic. She goes looking for it. She's frustrated that she's been so clumsy as to lose one of these coins. And so she sweeps the floor, she moves the furniture, she lights a lamp because in those days they didn't have huge windows like we have today. The windows were often small and so even in broad daylight the houses weren't well lit. And so she does not relent until she looks for it. In fact, this story has a few extra details that the other story doesn't. It says in verse uh, 8 that she seeks diligently until she finds it. She seeks diligently. She will not relent until she finds this coin. But then it says, verse 9, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors. Those words, friends and neighbors, are in, in uh, um, feminine gender. They're her, her female friends and neighbors and brings them together uh, and says, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I have lost. So Jesus again brings the point home of verse 10, similar to what he had said in verse 7. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Once again, heaven rejoices. Here it mentions the angels. I think the point is again to talk about the joy in heaven centered around the Lord. This is the Lord's joy that's radiating out into the angels and all of heaven. And his joy is, the cause of his joy is one sinner who repents. 
Not just over a group of sinners. He's not just looking for a majority. He's willing to celebrate one sinner. For each person that is saved, there's a party in heaven. Now I find it's the conclusions of these parables curious because I think if I were writing the story, I would have concluded like the second parable this way. I would have said, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner whom God saves or whom God finds. Right, because the whole, point, the whole point of the stories is about a shepherd who seeks and finds and then a woman who searches and finds and therefore the conclusion would be joy over one who was found. But it doesn't say that. It emphasizes the sinner who repents. I think in this, friends, we see the genius of Jesus. If he had concluded the way I just described, it could have given the impression that salvation requires no response from an individual. Or that if a sinner wants to be saved, you just need to sit back and be the lost sheep and wait for God to come get you. But in a stroke of rhetorical brilliance, Jesus tells two stories that highlight and emphasize the heart of God over lost sinners. And then in his conclusion, his punchline, he makes it clear that no one is saved by God's love who doesn't also repent. No one is saved by God's love who doesn't also repent. And here we have the two sides of salvation. We have the human agency and we have the divine action. In one sense, salvation is that of God pursuing sinners. He comes to get it, gets us. Salvation is a rescue mission, which these two parables describe, right? God comes to get us in our lostness. Hallelujah. He crossed heaven and earth in order to save us. We couldn't do it ourselves. We needed a savior, and he did that for us. And yet, when God rescues somebody, that person will then turn to God in repentance. If there's no repentance, then there's been no salvation. There's no party in heaven if there's no repentance. Someone can't just say, oh yeah, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, and move on and never actually repent or turn from their sin. If there's no repentance, there's no rejoicing in heaven. There's been no salvation. If someone has been saved by God, the rescuing grace of God, his heart will be changed. He'll realize his sin against a holy God. He knows he stands guilty before the bar of God's justice, but he knows that God is the God of salvation and that he needs to repent, and so he does, and he turns from his sin, and he embraces Christ. And so hence we have both sides. Yes, God comes to get us, which is the emphasis of these stories and yet Jesus makes it clear that if you're going to be included in those the number of those whom heaven rejoices over then it requires that we turn from our sin and repent of our sin and when that happens our triune God rejoices friends heaven celebrated the day that you repented of your sin God cares about each one of us and our own individual circumstances. And when he saw our heart turn from that heart of stone and we said, yes, I choose you, Jesus. 
I don't want the sin. I don't want all that this world has to offer. I want you and you alone. The angels rejoiced. The father beamed with joy. Friends, as we've seen the three, these three expressions of Jesus' love this morning, I want us to close by thinking about three things that this, these stories should do for us. Things that we've already heard but want to remind you of as we close. The first is that if you are feeling stuck in your sin this morning, if you are recognizing your sinful state, the, the, the actions and choices that you've made, you know you've been walking in disobedience to the Lord, you know that you've been living for yourself and for your own pleasure, you have not been living for the Lord and that you are mired and stuck in your sin, know that there's hope for you. This same Jesus is the Jesus that can bring hope and healing and salvation and forgiveness to you this morning. So I encourage you to repent of your rebellion today, turn from your sin today, and trust in him and him alone. The second thing I think we need to take away from this text is that we must be driven with the same heart as Jesus. Are we seeking to win the lost for Christ? Are we seeking to move towards those who are making shipwreck of their lives as they give themselves to sin, seeking to win them to the Lord as Jesus did? Do we search diligently for those who are lost? Are the lost who lived around us drawn to us because of our love and compassion for them? Could it be said of us that we receive sinners and eat with them? But thirdly and finally, friends, this passage reminds us that we can rest in the security of Jesus' love for us. If he's willing to cross heaven and earth and chase down every, each and every lost sheep, then we know he will search for us when we stray. We sang earlier, come thou found, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We've all had seasons of that wandering, seasons of drifting, but we can know that the same Jesus that sought us initially and brought us to him will continue to pursue us and continue to search us. He will not let us go. He does not give up on us. And friends, we can rest in that love, rest in that love for wayward souls even after we've first confessed him. He loves us that much. So let us see the love of Christ for us and let us rest in that this week. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this text that tells us of the love of the Savior for us and really his love that manifested and displayed your love and your joy. Oh Father, I pray that you would help us to get clarity in our vision of your love for us and what you have done in your love. We thank you, Father, that you have pursued us, that like a shepherd, you pursued us. Like a woman looking for a coin, you pursued us, sought diligently until we were found, until we were saved. I pray, Father, that you would help us to rest in that love this week, knowing that you, we are ever yours because you have found us and you keep us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.